Hello, and welcome to the History of the Cops. I'm Terry Young, from the History of the Early Church podcast. The history of the Coptic people is one of the most crucial elements of the story of early Christianity. Towering figures like Origen, Antony, Athanasius, and Cyril all hailed from the ancient churches of Alexandria and Roman Egypt. I hope you enjoy listening to the history of the Copts as Jonathan takes you through this amazing story. If you enjoy his content, then I think you'll certainly enjoy the History of the Early Church podcast, where we dive into the story of early Christianity, both in Egypt and throughout the ancient world. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Copts, episode 16. It's a riot. Last week, we ended with the dramatic attempt at arresting St. Athanasius at his church during the Midnight Braces and his escape from Alexandria to the heartland of Egypt. For the next six years, St. Athanasius traveled throughout Egypt and Alexandria, spending his time among the desert monks and writing multiple theological works against the Aryans. While on the run, he abandoned his usually diplomatic language and wrote several forceful works and letters where he was no longer appealing to Constantius, but condemning him as a heretic and an antichrist. Also, naturally, he never stopped communicating to his clergy and laymen, and it showed in their response to his replacement, George the Cappadocian. Even before George's arrival, the citizens of Alexandria were up in arms about raiding the church in the middle of the night, and they wrote a long formal protest against the officials that attempted to arrest an Athanasius to the prefect of Egypt. The protest is preserved and tells us the event that followed the attempted arrest. When St. Athanasius left the church, a door-to-door search commenced, followed by plundering of the churches and the houses searched, and the occasional violence when the citizens resisted. The protest also nicely sums up the feeling of the Alexandrian toward the whole matter and their loyalty to St. Athanasius. To quote the text, If an order has been given that we should be persecuted, then we all are ready to suffer martyrdom. Naturally, due to the strong feelings, the churches of Alexandria stayed in the hands of the Orthodox clergy loyal to San Athanasius for about six months, until a new prefect came to Egypt with specific orders, with specific orders to clear the way for George as the new bishop and to hand him the control of the churches. And a new prefect did just that. Using violence when necessary, churches were transferred to men who would be loyal to George. The Caesarium, the great church used by St. Athanasius before being dedicated formally a few years earlier, was the center of a notorious riot by the pagan community in Alexandria. It is hard to tell whether the riot was spontaneous or encouraged by the newly installed prefect as a way to ensure his control of the church. Either way, George arrived two months later and eight months after St. Athanasius, to a city that was clearly on edge. 
Despite George being a smart and a learned man, he almost from the start had an impossible job. He employed a three-pronged strategy to take control of Egypt. The stick, the carrot, and the common enemy. The stick was shown first, was the most hardcore of some Asinasius' supporters being eliminated quickly. As such, almost immediately, 17 bishops were exiled, and by the end of George's reign, the number have risen to 26. In Alexandria, when St. Athanasius supporters decided to instead of celebrating Easter with George in the church, they will go and pray in the cemetery, a group of soldiers were sent to attack them. They were beaten and then banished to the western desert. Next was the carrot. Using the church walls and the government, George was able to obtain a monopoly on the lucrative trade of the nitrite salt, papyrus production, and the all-important job of burying the dead. Thus, supporting him could mean a lucrative job and a salary. In addition, the free grain dole was withheld from the lower class supporters in Athanasius, and the wealthy supporters not only had their property confiscated, but in some cases their houses were destroyed. Lastly, the common enemy was naturally the pagans, whom George persecuted with a particular zeal, to try and win over the Christians. With the support of the garrison, he attempted to prohibit pagan sacrifices, and was the force behind Constantius' decision to eliminate tax exemptions for pagan temples. But perhaps his most audacious attack on the pagan community was the looting of valuables from the temple of Serapis, the patron god of Alexandria, who was thus far an untouchable object in Alexandria. His strategy may have worked if St. Athanasius was arrested, or even if he kept a low profile on the run. But St. Athanasius was constantly active, writing to bishops and clergy, instructing them to offer resistance to George and the Arian theology. Monks were even instructed not to receive Arian guests or share a meal with them, and a group of monks in Thebes went as far as to write that Arians are not welcome here on the wall of their monastery. So instead of winning over the Christians of the city, who were unmovable in their support to Athanasius, he ended up becoming a hated figure for both the pagans and the Christians. His stick became evidence for tyranny, and his carrot was the proof of his greed and exploitation of the poor. And under the banners of holy suffering and unyielding theological resistance, the cops rejected him. Thus, within 18 months, while praying in the church of Dionysius, a riot broke out and the crowd was intent on lynching him, and he barely escaped with his life. His plan failed to have anything resembling control in Egypt. And in the words of Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And George, figuratively and quite possibly literally, was punched pretty hard. Realizing that staying in Egypt is problematic at this point, he left a month later and stayed away from Egypt for the next three years. During his absence, St. Athanasius' supporters were able to get the churches back and St. Athanasius made a brief public appearance in Alexandria. But then the garrison and the prefect intervened and got the churches back to George's entourage.
Constantius, for his part, tried really hard to sell the Egyptians and George, but for the most part was unsuccessful. He even sent embassies to Ethiopia and asked them to send Formentius to Alexandria to be interviewed by George and to reject the teaching of St. Athanasius. As far as we can tell, nothing came out of his outreach to Ethiopia other than the additional need historical evidence further cementing the role St. Athanasius played in the birth of the Ethiopian church. Despite the tremendous support St. Athanasius had in Egypt, he was becoming increasingly isolated outside of Egypt. In 357 AD, Osius of Cordova, under intense pressure, signed on to an Arian creed. By 350 AD, the bishop of Rome, Liberius, also gave up, condemned St. Athanasius, and made peace with Constantius. By 360 AD, three different new councils have condemned St. Athanasius, and not a single bishop outside of Egypt was sympathetic to his plight. In any other province of the empire, a problematic bishop that lost the support of his fellow bishops and the emperor would have no chance of surviving long. But Egypt had something that no one had yet. Monks. St. Anthony, who was an ardent supporter of St. Athanasius, had died in 356 AD, but had left an impressive legacy. Briefly, as I may do a special episode dedicated to this topic, the Coptic monks would live as they are dead to the world, either completely alone as a hermit or in highly organized communities with strict rules, they would dedicate their lives to prayers and meditation. Dead to the world obviously meant rejecting material wealth and a vow of celibacy. Highly religious, independent, and with a significant spiritual influence on the local community. They usually served as a fortress for the Coptic patriarch when the imperial policy was hostile. I mean, what can the emperor do to a group of men who sold their positions and went to live in seclusion? In Syria, at least, promises of false and power or threats of punishment and death is completely ineffective. Thus, San Asanasius hid in his fortress and only sharpened his theological dialogue as his new audience now were the monks. On the other hand, without a strong theological leader, the Aryan coalition by the late 350s AD started to fight among themselves. Now, I kind of try to avoid diving deep into theology in this podcast. That's why I have been using the convenient label, Aryans. But it's not a super accurate label at this point of history. Thus far, anyone who felt that the Nicene Creed was not good enough got slapped with that label. And as that group generally opposed to Athanasius, and he's the focus of our narrative, that label was sufficient description of their political motives, but it's not a really good one to describe their theological views. The late 350s AD was full of intrigue, shifting alliances, and a heightened level of the theological conflict. To simplify things, the Aryan coalition was now split into two main camps. One that advocates that the father is of a similar nature of the son, and a more radical wing that their nature is dissimilar. And as a reminder, St. Athanasius' view was that of the Council of Nicaea, 
which is that the Son is of the same nature of the Father. So, we have three camps describing the nature of the Son and the Father. Those who use the word same, I'm calling those ones orthodox. That's where St. Athanasius is. Those who use the word similar, and I'm going to call those semi-Aryans. These bishops are the old guard of the churches of the East. And finally, those who use the word dissimilar, and I'm going to call those ones neo-Aryans. Those bishops are more or less neo at the scene. Now, I'm really oversimplifying here. And if there is an actual historian or theologian listening, they may not like the terms neo-Aryan and semi-Aryan. But I have to give them a label, and using the Greek labels would not be helpful to anybody. Anyway, the split in the Aryan group played out in three different councils during the exile of Senesius and had two major consequences. The first, in his effort to obtain unity, Constantius interferes in the theological issues with a heavy hand and turns a significant portion of the Western bishops against him. The second, the semi-Aryan bishops warm up to the idea of accepting the Nicene Creed as is, to avoid constantly defending new innovations and ideas such as the word dissimilar. That second point had the effect of gradually increasing the prestige of San Athanasius as the most visible Brunicean bishop left. But its full effect will come in a little bit. For now, the change was slow and subtle. So while Constantius was losing the Western bishops and the population due to his heavy hand in the theological debate, Julian, his appointed Caesar, was doing a great job defending the empire from barbarians and gaining new fans by the day. In early 360 AD, the Persians once again attacked the empire and Constantius went to regain his lost territory. As part of his preparation, he ordered a significant portion of the troops attached to Julian to go with him. But the troops refused to leave their homes in the west and rebelled, proclaiming Julian as their Augustus. Slowly, methodically, and diplomatically, Julian consolidated his power over the West, and civil war was imminent. As a pagan ruling an increasingly Christian empire, you would expect some resistance to Julian's ascension as an Augustus. But he was by all means a capable emperor, and as mentioned before, the Western bishops were not happy with Constantius's heavy hand. Thus, he received enough support to be able to directly challenge Constantius, who could not force the matter immediately due to his war with Persia. But just before their head-to-head showdown, Constantius dies in November 361 AD, aged 44, from likely an infectious disease leaving Julian as the undisputed master of the empire. Constantius' legacy is extremely complicated. He is painted as a heretical, inefficient, and a cruel ruler by many ancient historians. San Athanasius and several Christian historians go as far as comparing him to the Antichrist. Even pagan historians were not super kind to him. One of them remarks on his rule by saying, The Christian religion is plain and simple. 
but Constantius confounded it with senile superstition. He aroused many differences by curious inquiries, instead of reconciling them by his authority, and when these had spread in all directions, he propagated them by verbal disputes. He utterly ruined the postal service by allowing the use of horses to troops of bishops. Just like his father, he was eager to involve the imperial authority in church matters. But unlike his father, he did not have a light touch. His hand was heavy, and rather than being invested in relative peace, he was invested in a pacific ideology. Despite those feelings, he was successful on a couple of fronts. For one, for the most part, he was successful militarily, and he also mastered the art of palace intrigue, emerging as the sole ruler of the empire from a complicated succession plan and multiple revolts, ending his career dying naturally. That is quite a feat for the usually dangerous office of the emperor. Anyway, with his death, Julian ascends the throne and becomes the sole ruler of the empire. He started his reign by proclaiming a narrative of religious freedom, which not only meant the freedom of pagans to worship, but also the different groups of Christianity and the Jews. As a result of this policy, he issued an edict in 360 AD, before the death of Constantius, allowing the return of the exiled bishops to their cities. His intention was obviously to destabilize Constantius's domain and to subdue any potential hostility toward him as a pagan from those bishops. Nonetheless, the prefect of Egypt did not publish the edict until well after the death of Constantius and the death of George in 362 AD, knowing that publishing an edict to return to Athanasius during a civil war is a bad idea. Once Julian felt his hold on power secure, he started to reverse all the policies of Constantine that favored Christianity and slowly was creating a world where a Christian would have significant hurdles for social and economic advancement, but not outright persecuted. He also went about strengthening the organization of the different pagan cults and create a solid hierarchy similar to the church to serve as a competing institution. You have to give it to him. Julian knew what he was doing. He took great pains not to give the church new martyrs, knowing that this will only increase the resistance. If it wasn't for a random spear flying in the air, or the intervention of a certain legendary saint, if you prefer to see it this way, our world today may have been completely different. But we'll talk about this more next week. Now, for those paying attention, you may have noticed that I said the death of George the Cabidotian. So let's take a step back to see the events in Egypt during the transition. George of Cabidotia have decided to finally come back to Alexandria in late November 361 AD, which was quite serendipitous as it was four days before Constantius's death. Apparently, as soon as he returned, he went to a neglected pagan temple 
that was given to him by Constantius to be repurposed as a church. While surveying the temple, many pagan artifacts were discovered, and George, sensing an opportunity to gain the favor of the Christians, decided to take the artifacts and parade them through the streets in a mocking manner. The pagans were clearly offended, and a crowd started to gather to see what's going on. Then, a ship arrived with the news that Constantius have died, and the news traveled like wildfire in Alexandria. Then a huge riot started with the mob directing all of their energies and George and two Christian men of his entourage that also have offended the pagan community. Notable citizens then intervened and rescued them, but still put them in prison, promising the crowd a trial for their offenses by the new Emperor Julian. But the growing strength of the pagan feelings could no longer be contained, and a month later, on Christmas Eve, the prison was attacked by a mob, where the three men were dragged out, beaten with sticks, kicked, and as Julian describes it, the people actually tore Georgian pieces as if they had been dogs. The body of George, or what is left of it, was then thrown upon the back of a camel and paraded through the streets as he has done with the pagan artifacts. And finally, to not give him the all-important proper burial, the crowd burnt his body and then cast the ashes into the sea. The same probably also happened to the two men who were imprisoned with him. Now, as a cool historical trivia, Edward Gibbons, the 8-volume History of Rome guy, used that event to link this George to the legendary Saint George, the patron saint of the Kingdom of England, and a beloved saint for the Copts. But later historians came and more or less debunked his theory. So if you ever hear this George confused with the other George, go ahead and blame Gibbons, and nicely point out that they are two different people. Also, for fairness' sake, as mentioned before, George was a hated figure for all Alexandrians, pagan and Christians, so probably some Christians participated in his lynching, but all official historical documentation point to a distinctively pagan nature of the riot. Julian, for his part, wasn't about to punish the pagans for lynching a Christian bishop, so he let the whole episode go with a mild warning, urging the Alexandrian to remember their old Greek and pagan heritage. By February 362 AD, two months after the death of George, the edict to return all the exiled bishops finally was published in Alexandria. Twelve days later, St. Athanasius publicly appears in the city to take charge of his see. Things were cruelly in disarray. His most loyal bishops were exiled and many of them died in the journey. Many of the bishops left were forced into accepting a semi-Aryan position, and some of them condemned St. Athanasius. So by the spring of 362 AD, St. Athanasius convened a council in Alexandria, where his diplomatic skills have really shined. The decision of the council was to accept any bishop, regardless of past statement or actions, who accepts the basic tenets of the Council of Nicaea. It does not matter if they condemned St. Athanasius before 
were known as Arians or were his public enemies. San Athanasius was ready to make peace with everyone, especially the semi-Arians, so long as they make the small jump from similar to same. He also made serious effort to reconcile different factions in the Church of Antioch, but failed. Despite the failure in Antioch, the message of the council reached a receptive audience in the West, and a movement started to reconcile around accepting the Council of Nicaea, as is. Julian predictably was not very happy about this development. Returning the exiled bishops did not increase the divisions, but made the church a more unified institution. His letter to the prefect of Egypt on the occasion nicely sums up his feeling toward Athanasius. Julian writes, So you neglect to write to me on any other subject. At least it is your duty to inform me of your conduct toward Athanasius, the enemy of the gods. My intentions have been long since communicated to you. I swear by the great Therabes that unless on the 1st of December Athanasius has departed from Alexandria, nay, from Egypt, the officers of your government shall pay a fine of 100 pounds of gold. I am slow to condemn, but I am still slower to forgive. But the local senate of Alexandria intended to petition Julian for St. Athanasius to stay, and word reached Julian that St. Athanasius have baptized some important pagans. Thus, another strongly worded letter followed. It vexes me greatly to be disobeyed. By all the gods, there is nothing I should rather see, or rather hear of, as done by you, than that Athanasius have been driven out of Egypt. The infamous fellow, he has the effrontery to baptize Greek women married to prominent citizens in my reign. Let him be hunted down. The words reached St. Athanasius via his network, and he decided to leave Alexandria quietly to avoid massive riots and possibly his deaths. He was traveling by boat through the Nile, but before he had gone very far, he realized that government agents are following him, either to arrest him and exile him out of Egypt, or for a quiet execution. So once he was out of their sight briefly, owing to abandon the river, he ordered his boat to be turned around toward the direction of the government boat. The agents pursuing him shouted as they passed by his boat if he had seen Athanasius, to which he calmly answered, he's not that far off. Then he landed and made his way by land to Memphis, where he wrote his fistal letter and then once more to Crevigy with the monks. Next week, Julian would die in a curious way, and his attempt to restore paganism would die with him. We do have a quiet bit left in the story of St. Athanasius, but I think next week should be the last week. Farewell, and until next week.